0: came to, uh, to the Lord while he was in middle school, and uh, as he was uh, finishing up uh, college, um, decided to hear the call to go into the ministry, and uh, went to seminary out in the Boston area. He's been currently uh, in Oklahoma City at the Henderson Hills Baptist Church as a uh, pastoral resident, and uh, I really enjoyed the message this morning, first service. He told me that it was actually about a two-hour message, and I told him, well, let's keep the time down on the first service, but uh, I'm really excited to see what he has to say (laughs) now. So, (laughs) David, thank you for bringing the word to us. Man, it must have been really good in the first service, because it was, I don't know, felt like two hours from up here. Um... Greetings, uh, my name is David. Greetings from Henderson Hills. I know several of our pastors have been coming to supply this pulpit over the past couple months. And we we celebrate with you. You've just uh, accepted a a guy to come be your next pastor. So we're praising God with you. I brought my friend Parker Griffin. He's also a pastoral pastoral resident at the church. uh, So he's here soaking it up as well. Um, I'm going to read our passage. We're going to be in Psalm 90 today. So we'll read and... Then I'll pray, and then we'll get started. Psalm 90. Lord, you have been a dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust, and say, return, O children of man. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? And your wrath according to the fear of you. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. I ask that you would speak clearly from it, that you would keep me from saying anything that is untrue, that portrays you, in an untrue way. pray that you'd help us leave here with a better understanding of you and your character and what this text says, that we might live more in accordance to your will. Be with us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So I, uh, I just finished up a week of dog sitting for a family at our church, just ended this Friday night. And uh, if you have pets, I mean, really, even if you don't, you know that animals will require certain things for you that that you need to do for them, things that they are helpless to do for themselves. So, for example, I I needed to let her out to use the the potty. I needed to fill her food bowl and her water bowl every single day. She couldn't do those things for herself. But also, and, and they warned me about this before I got there, this dog was, had, had a unique need. This dog never drank twice from the same bowl of water. She, she would drink once, and like there's still a ton of water left, but would never return to it. So in the morning, I would, get, I would just hear this dog panting and whining right next to my face on the pillow, because she was thirsty, because she hadn't touched that perfectly fine bowl of water since the night before So every day, every morning, I would have to fill her bowl multiple times. And then first thing when I get back from work, I would have to fill her bowl multiple times that night. It was a really strange need that I had to fill for her. But, I mean, that's how she was raised. That's the need that she learned to carry with her life. She was a needy dog and helplessly needy. And I think that's that's a similar lesson that we'll pick up from our chapter today. If, If there was a big idea for our sermon this morning, it's that man can do nothing apart from God. We are exceedingly needy before God, helplessly so. Now I'll try to flesh that out in three points. First, we have a God of safety. We have a God of safety. And second, we are needy. God of safety, needy men. And thirdly, we have a God who provides. So let's, uh, let's see that worked out in our text. First, the God of safety. Verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now it says there in the heading that this is a psalm of Moses. It's the only psalm by Moses in the whole book of the Psalms which would make it the oldest psalm in the book. And it was probably written during the time of their wandering in the desert. So if you know a little bit about Israel, Israelite history, they've just finished up centuries of being enslaved by the Egyptians, and God saves them, crosses the Red Sea, opens the Red Sea so they can cross it. But there's, there are these few decades of wandering around this mountain aimlessly. That's the setting. Now Moses is writing this as he's looking back on their journey. They've just left a home. But also they're, they're, they're yet to land at a home for themselves. And in this context, he proclaims that God is our dwelling place. That God is our home. He has been our refuge for all generations. Now, for those of us who've been in church for a long time, we can read these things and become so familiarized that we don't really pay attention to what's happening. We, we read something like this, and that, that doesn't strike us in any way. It's one of the few advantages of being fairly new to church. You can read something like this and actually have to pause. What in the world does that mean? How is God our dwelling place? Well, I think Moses wrote that with, with a lot of purpose. He wrote that knowing exactly what he was saying. He's been leading the Israelites around and around the desert. He's been hoping to find and land and settle in the promised land. God's been telling them about this. He's promised Abraham, the forefather, about this. And it's just been passed on from generation to generation. The promised land is coming. I promise the promised land is coming for you and your people. But 40 years in the desert? What did, what did God save them out of Egypt for? To, to wander, to want to go back to Egypt with their meat and their fruit. Moses is saying, in spite of what their surroundings might suggest, they have not been homeless. They have not been without a dwelling place. No, if anything, their, their plight has caused them to go further into the truth, to realize more and more deeply that their truest home is no land at all. Their truest home is no building at all. Their truest home is God himself. And if you think about it, there's really no safer place to be than being found in God himself. He's the one who owns all the land to begin with. He's the the one who owns all the structures to begin with. Now, of course, physical homes and land are, are good and necessary things, important things. But Moses is making a bigger point here. He's making a point similar to when Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone. Of course, we live by bread physically. But our souls, our souls are starved if we don't give it spiritual nourishment. It's not merely our physical bodies that need protection, that need shelter, that need a dwelling place. But more importantly, it's our souls. Our souls need a home. And there isn't a home or a fortress in the land that is sturdy enough, that is strong enough for that work. Walls will crumble over time. Foundations will inevitably decay. If our souls are to be sheltered, they need to be sheltered by God. That's that's quite a statement that Moses is making here in this context. He's starting off this song. Guys, look around. It is terrible. We have to hit rocks to get water. Nevertheless, we are safe because we are in the Lord. God is our dwelling place. The promised land is still someone else's land. We've been enslaved in someone else's land. But still, Lord, we've been kept safe by you. Verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses is expanding on what he's just mentioned in verse 1, that God is, in fact, a dwelling place for all generations. How? Because he is everlasting to everlasting. He has been there for all generations. He's been around. He was and he is and will continue to be. In a world that is ruled by the temporary, by the shifting, by the changing, by the dying, by the leaving, God and God alone Is permanent. And after all things have passed, God will remain unchanged. His hand will remain unwithered, as strong to save as it has ever been. So to dwell in God, the eternal one, the mountain maker, to dwell in Him is to be eternally secure. So we ask here, does your soul have a home? Does your soul have a home? I'm going to insist that your soul has made a home for itself. And it's, it's made a home in the thing it trusts the most. Whatever your soul trusts the most, that's where your soul lives. Where is that for you? Perhaps it's been a vocation. Perhaps it's been a relationship or a a network of relationships. Perhaps it's been even your church family or your location or your stage in life. What are you trusting the most in? Are you trusting in something more than God like the Israelites have? There is no safer No more trustworthy place for your soul to rest, for your soul to be at peace in, than in God himself. We have a God of safety. Explore him. Secondly, the psalm shows us that we are needy men. That we are needy men. Verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. God, who has no beginning and end, will return men to their end. All of us will return to the ground from where we came. God knows the number of our days, and when they're up, they are up. Now, the interesting thing about man is we don't. We don't really consider that. We actually, functionally in many ways, we live like we're like God. If the downfall of man then is that he thinks of himself as God, this verse and several others to come, they highlight just how foolish that endeavor is. We are not like God. We are as unlike God as you can be. We do change. We do fade. Our bodies will fail. And as true as it is that we're all made in God's image, we may actually have more in common with the dust beneath which we will be buried than God, the creator. We are lowly. We are, we're brittle. We're prone to be tossed to and fro by the wind. That is not God, but that is very much God. verse 4 he continues with this train of thought for a thousand years in your sight or but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night a thousand years to contrast with the brevity of our lives a thousand years a lot happens in a thousand years kingdoms come and go societies have changed multiple times many times over new ideas new philosophies new political regimes our population actually from 1,000 years ago to now has grown from 300 million to over 7 billion people. Orders of magnitude more. In 2016, we have the world in our pockets. And in 1016, we didn't even have paper. A lot happens in a 1,000 years. Human beings achieve and change much in a 1,000 years. And yet, to God... They're like nothing. That's like nothing. It's like a watch in the night. God is God and we are not. He continues, verse 5 and 6. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Swept away like a flood, fades away like the grass. Moses, of course, he's very familiar with the flood narrative earlier in Genesis, and certainly the people of Israel are as well. And he's he's called this to mind to illustrate to them just how ungod they are. And they're also like grass that comes and goes. As one author put it, the lifetime, the, the, the lifespan of grass can be told in just five words. Sown, grown, blown, mown, gone. That's grass. And that's us. Centuries of human achievement are like that grass that grows but gets swept away. The millennia are but wisps to an infinite God. Now these verses do describe man. But at the same time, they're also deliberate in how they contrast man with God. They're not simply illustrating man in a vacuum. They are showing the reader just how different from God we are. How God, by nature, exceeds, without even trying, exceeds all human categories. We are frail, finite. God is unlimited. It's not so much much about cars and airplanes. It's more like cars and the sun. There's just no comparison. So you can see how Moses might be incredibly just just flabbergasted at the people around him. He's surrounded by people who are complaining, literally wishing to go back to the land where they were slaves. They're testing him. They're testing God. And his biggest worry is that his people... Would, want to, would rather play God than be supplied by God. Would rather play God than live in safety under God, in submission to God. That people would trust themselves. And, and, and in so doing, quickly forget that it is God who split and held the walls of water against themselves so that they could walk across to another land. That happened, like, in their lifetime. Walked across the sea. That's, it, you don't forget something like that. And yet, they're living like they do. They're forgetful of the past. And in doing so, they become ignorant of the present. And with ignorance comes pride. We can understand that. We can, we c- we can understand when the great boxer Muhammad Ali, we can understand when he says, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. Now, many of us, most of us aren't world-famous heavyweight champions, but in our hearts of hearts, isn't that our cry? Isn't that what we wish so many other people would just understand? If they only knew how great I was. When we start thinking that, we also start forgetting about who God is. It's silly when in actuality we wither in the evil. Verses 7 and 8. What happens? What happens to us when we are like grass? We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Why does God sweep us away? What happens to this grass? Why do we all return to the dust? What's well, our sinfulness? It's our sinfulness, and God has seen every single instance of it. See, our, our differences with God aren't merely physical, as, we, as might be suggested earlier. Now, Those differences are substantial and very real and will never change. We'll never be all-knowing. We'll never be all-powerful. We'll never create something from nothing. And these will never change no matter what, no matter how much we try to change them. We can't. But there is another difference, perhaps a more key difference that we do try to buck up against every single day. And that difference is that God actually deserves to be worshipped. We do not. That's the key difference. And when we worship other things rather than God, that's when we sin. That's when we sin. And if you're anything like me, like me, that's bad news, because that means you sin a whole bunch. I choose my own comfort, convenience, ov- over the command to love, to love sacrificially. I would rather be satisfied by entertainment or food or even doing God's work in ministry than enjoying God for who he is than coming to him directly. I'll act like I can hide things from God because I've hidden them from people. As if that's possible, to hide something from God. How foolish we can be. If you you caught that in verse 8, it says that his anger and wrath come Because our iniquities are before him. Because our secret sins are in the light of his presence. And so, verse 9, all our days pass away under God's wrath. Our 70, our 80 years, they are troublesome. And then they're gone like the grass. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? These are... (laughs) A striking set of verses. Inescapable. Now friend, if you're not a Christian, if you're not confident that you are a Christian, you definitely cannot escape these verses here. You have to deal with them. They portray a clearly angry God. A wrathful God. A serious God. It's one of those things where you wish was only a threat or a joke. And even then it will be tough to hear, but it is, it is actual. Actually, right now, there could be an angry, wrathful God. Now, if God is big and strong like we covered earlier, but if his kind of system of morals is really loose, or if he's big and strong but he just doesn't really respect himself, then we have nothing to worry about. Then you can relax. you can do whatever you want. He's just a big George McFly in the sky. He can sin to his face and not think twice. But that's not who God is. That's not at all. That's not at all who God is. God is big. God is. As big as you think he is, he is as angry as Hover Sin. One of the more striking verses in the Bible that illustrate this, Psalm 7, verse 12. It reads: If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons making his arrows fiery shafts. If a man does not repent, God is wetting his sword. God, in his perfect glory, he looks down at sinners and in his righteousness wants to strike them down because sin is a betrayal. It's a betrayal of the created order. It's a betrayal of the Creator himself so when it says that our iniquities are before him when it says our secret sins that no one else might know about when our secret sins are actually in the light of his presence that verse raises really the only ultimate question you need to answer in your life and that is what is god going to do with your sin what is god going to do about your sin? It's not a question of whether you sin or not. These are universal claims. Iniquities, transgressions, sins, humanity. What will a just God who loves and protects his justice do about our sin? Well, that's the answer to that question is really why we gather. The answer to that question is why thousands, millions of people are gathering this morning, this very Lord's Day. Why? Because the Lord gave us recourse. He gave us a way out. He sent His only Son because He saw us mired in our sin. He saw us unable to stop and hate what should be hated and therefore pouring judgment more and more upon ourselves with every act of greed, with every wandering look, with every lie, we pour judgment upon ourselves. And, and, and we can't escape his judgment. We can't stop sinning. So he sent his only son to be the only sinless man and yet to die for the sins of other men. That just by trusting in him, just by believing that he did so for us, We can apply his sinlessness to ourselves. We can apply his victory over sin and death to ourselves. And we get to be raised to eternal life with him, enjoying the fullness of God. That is the good news. That is good news. Jesus took on these very iniquities. He took on these very secret sins. And he died to take this anger and wrath of God away from those who placed their faith in him. Praise God. If if this is new news for you, it is good news. But you have to, in order for it to be good news, you have to face the bad news first. You have to face the bad news of your sin. But come to Christ. Look at the cross. Ask God to help you see your sin as how he sees your sin. Then come to the cross and look at Jesus who paid for all of it. So that you would have to pay for none of them. He is faithful to forgive. He doesn't withhold forgiveness from anyone who seeks it. And he never takes it back. He never changes mind for those to whom he's offered forgiveness he is the way that we can be sinners in the light of God's presence and still remain safe God is only safe for those in Christ but when for those in Christ he is ultimately incredibly eternally safe we are needy in a myriad ways we are most needy when it comes to our sin And God provided a way in his son. Now that leads right into our next point that God provides. God is our provider. He provided for our greatest need in our sin. And he also provides, he's faithful to to provide for the rest of our lives. Let's look at verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Verse 12, and, and really through the rest of the chapter, there are, there are a series of requests that Moses makes to God because, because Moses knows that God is a God who provides. He only asks these, th- asks these things of God because he knows God will hear him and God will respond. So we get to ask him. So Moses shows us how to ask God. And the first thing he mentions, indeed, numbering our days is a means of gaining wisdom. We need to be taught that by God. You know, there's a, there was an article that came out recently uh, about how long the average uh, professional football player's career lasts. Any, any guesses? 2.4. It's pretty close. The, the article I read said 33 Roughly the same thing. 3.3 years. It's nothing. It's less than high school for some of us. And yet, what, what, what do we see every, every year? There's always like some documentary about all these broke athletes, right? Athletes who sp- squandered their money, splurged on meaningless things. Why? They were never taught to number their days. They were never taught to number the days that they would actually get paid these millions of dollars to perform. They thought they'd be the exception. They thought they'd be the one to never get injured. They thought they'd be the talent who would transcend all other people, all other athletes. For the most part, they're not. Three years later, they're out of work. They've developed these terrible habits of spending. They have this lifestyle that they feel like they need to keep up. They didn't number their days. They lived unwisely. It's the same with our lives. We read earlier that we're, we're headed back to the dust. That our 70, 80 years will, be, will pass us by like that. If we don't face up to the brevity of our lives, if we act like we have a thousand years here, we will, we will, will live foolishly. We will live Unwisely, So we see here Moses asking God for this. Because he knows that our natural tendency is very much like that football player. It's very much to not count our days. We're not naturally wired to be wise like that. We need to do what Moses gives us an example of here. We need to pray like Moses is praying. Asking God like Moses is asking. God, teach us to number our days. God, I want a heart of wisdom. Teach me to number my days. Let's ask, like Moses is asking here, if we are in Christ, God hears us. We have every promise in Christ that God hears us and he will respond. So let's ask him as we see here. God provides when we ask him. What else will God provide? Verses 13 to 15. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Moses isn't ignoring the fact that life has been difficult, Moses isn't pretending like they actually do live in this glorious castle protected from all the elements that they have, all the supplies and food that they need. They do not. Moses knows that. And he is, so he's aware. As many days as you have afflicted us, Lord, as many years as we have seen evil, God, would you make us glad? We've seen your anger and your wrath up to this point. We ask that you change that to gladness. Instead of the mornings from verse 6 where It's it's short, and it only highlights the brevity and the lightness of human life. These mornings, Lord, would you fill them with your steadfast love that we might rejoice all our days. He's using the same language from earlier in the psalm, just bleak. But he's now turning it, knowing God's promises, remembering who God is, knowing that God will provide. He seeks him. Moses says these things, really in verse 3 in particular, that God, just as God will return man to the dust, Moses is now asking God to return to man. Yes, we've established the difference between the divine and the earthly. It's a chasm that can't be bridged. But now, Moses is highlighting how much the earthly needs the divine. Both. Both. see then that God, what what Moses is ultimately asking God to provide is a satisfaction over and against what we see before. A satisfaction not in being God, not in being like God, but he wants God to provide a satisfaction that comes from being loved by God. Give us your steadfast love, Lord. That's what we want. It is not good for us to put on your clothes. Just love us. And God will provide that, will he not? He's given us Christ. Will he not provide us his love? Will he not remind us of his love? He does and he will. Instead of anger and wrath, we get God's gladness. Verse 16 and 17, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses asked God to show his work and his glorious power to their children. Earlier in the chapter, he mentions that it's the power of God's anger that brings men's life to an end. Now, he mentions God's power again, but he wants God to show it at life's beginnings. Through children, through family, through growth, through flourishing. How will, how will Moses know that God has provided? Those who will come will see God's power. That's what Moses is asking. You've shown your power to us just how, just how angry your power can look. Lord, now we ask that your power look Glorious to our children. Why? Because our children will also be needy men themselves. Our children will also want to be like you. Our children will also forget that they are not like you. And they will trust themselves and run to other things. Show your glorious power to our children. And like Moses, let's learn to pray these kinds of things. Let's learn to pray this for our families, for our churches. That those to come would see. It's glorious power. What greater gift could God give to his people? And finally, in verse 17, the prayer for God's glorious power to be re- revealed, it should accompany the one that Moses closes this song with. That God's favor be upon us, and that God would establish the work of our hands. Again, truly, truly, if this psalm is about anything, it's about the fact that man can do nothing apart from God. Man can, ha, has no recourse apart from God. But with God, what will God not provide to a man he has favored? What will God withhold from a man he has nothing against? Brothers and sisters, in Christ, God has nothing against us. God is for us. God is our Father. And He is a good Father, a perfect Father, who withholds no good gift, who exceedingly loves to give good gifts. But it is we who do not ask. Moses knows this. He knows this keenly. So he repeats himself to make sure that God heard him and make sure his readers know and make sure all the people who sing this song For generations to come, know that God is one you can ask things to, and he will respond. So we can, as a child would ask his father, Father, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And we need to pray this prayer. Because it's ultimately God who does establish our work. He makes our work eventually be what it ends up being. There are a million and a half things that are out of your control that still, nevertheless, affect your daily life. Right? I mean, you could go—the list just doesn't end. At work and your families, wherever else, driving. There are most things in life are beyond your control, and yet, God protects us. God establishes our work. Let's learn to keep asking him to do that because he's the only one who can ultimately do that. With Moses, we ought to pray, knowing our need and his ability to provide, that he would provide. And the sweet news is because we are in Christ, that part, let the favor of the Lord of God our God be upon us, that prayer has been answered. That prayer has been answered once and for all. If you are in faith in Christ, yes, you have the Lord's favor upon you. God cannot smile upon you more than give you the gift of His Son, than give you the gift of bring you into His family. You want favor of, of other things, other other things in your life. Do you understand what you've been given? been given everything for this life and the next. Rejoice in that. In a world of impermanence that is ever-shifting, full of uncertainty, full of doubt, we live as limited men before an eternal, safe God. Rejoice that he has provided salvation to needy men like us, and because he has done so, he is also faithful to provide for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you that when we are faithless, you are faithful. That when we run away, that when we forget, when we mistrust, distrust, you stay true to yourself and that you are faithful. You remain our dwelling. God, would you remind us this week how needy we are, and would you also remind us and refresh us in all that you have indeed given us. Help us to honor you and live more in accordance with your will, and in Jesus' name.